Hi, George Lavender here. Just a reminder that if you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and clicking on the big donate button. And if you haven't done so already, you can also rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks a lot. Here's the show. This week on Making Contact, nuclear weapons are at the heart of the military-industrial complex, which is running this country and much of the world. Israel is a nuclear-armed state. How many bombs? It doesn't really matter. What matter is that we need to get rid of them. We would like to see certainly Britain give up its nuclear addiction. What we're saying is that nuclear bombs are dangerous for all humankind. Women Rising Radio joins prominent global activists at a yearly demonstration outside the locked gates of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories, a major U.S. site of nuclear weapons development located near San Francisco. As I stand here today, I can feel the spirit of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the Marshall Island. They are watching us and they are encouraging us to fight. Behind this fence right now, new nuclear weapons are created and modernized for possible use. We are gathered here today to remember when the monster hit our Earth. This monster hit a place called Japan. We are not here to celebrate the monster, but to honor the people who are hurt and killed by this monster. Today, August 9th, is Nagasaki Day. In August of 1945, atomic bombs destroyed the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In memory of those who died, these global activists demand nuclear disarmament. Some will carry out nonviolent civil disobedience and risk arrest. Other protesters are young children. I'm Eli. I'm nine. We're doing giant nuke bombs to destroy other countries. It makes me feel disappointed. I'm Kali. There's lots of people in the street who are suffering and who need that money. But instead, they're just taking it for themselves and making bombs that are causing global warming. If you've ever been to Hiroshima and Nagasaki and visited the museum, you will see photographs where the only thing left of human bodies was a smudge on the steps, a smudge on the sidewalk. And so the solemn act of chalking around your body is to commemorate the fact that human beings are vaporized by even a crude nuclear weapon. Jackie and I will sound the alarm, like the air raid alarm that sounded. Imagine a bomb falling. The leader of this nuclear die-in is Marilea Kelly, a longtime U.S. peace activist with the Bay Area group Tri-Valley Cares. Sounding the siren with her is Jackie Cabasso, head of the Western States Legal Foundation. 
Jackie is an anti-nuclear abolitionist whose activism spans four decades. Like Eli and Kali, Jackie became aware of the danger of nuclear power very early in her life. When I was five or six years old growing up in New York, we had weekly air raid drills and duck and cover drills where we had to hide under the desk and sirens would go off and we would be sent home. And, of course, I didn't understand what it meant, but it was very scary. And I even think I wet my pants the first time it happened. In fact, I didn't really learn about nuclear weapons until, well, after high school, as a matter of fact, because in high school they did not teach us about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In 1979, there was the first rally at the Livermore Nuclear Weapons Laboratory, and it was the first time that I learned that there was actually a nuclear weapons research laboratory right here in the Bay Area. Turns out one of the two principal U.S. nuclear weapons design facilities to this day. Jackie Cabasso grew up in the era of Kennedy, Khrushchev, and the Cuban Missile Crisis, a tense nuclear standoff between the U.S. and the former Soviet Union that made the specter of nuclear warfare clear to everyone. Kennedy in particular was very concerned about the potential for the spread of nuclear weapons to more countries at that time. It was only the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union that had nuclear weapons. And so they put in place the initial steps which would ultimately result in the signing of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty in 1970. The United States, the UK, and the USSR promised to negotiate in good faith the end of the arms race at an early date and the elimination of their nuclear weapons under strict and effective international control. If you had asked me at some point in the 1980s, what would it take to get rid of nuclear weapons? Or what do you think would happen if the Soviet Union you know, disappeared overnight? You know, I would have thought, well, then that's the end of nuclear weapons. Well, that was not the case at all. Immediately, the nuclear weapons establishment at the core of the military-industrial complex, started coming up with new justifications to project the nuclear weapons enterprise into the foreseeable future. President Obama's Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter, declared that nuclear weapons are the cornerstone of U.S. national security. For Jackie Cabasso, that's a very dangerous foreign policy. For Ashton Carter to say it so blatantly kind of underscores the point. When he makes a statement like that, we need to take it seriously. We have threats and counter threats going on between the United States and North Korea. And it's not just words. The U.S. is the only country that has nuclear weapons deployed on foreign soil. The U.S. is engaged in a massive program to modernize to the tune of a projected trillion dollars over the next 30 years. And we have Russia modernizing its nuclear arsenal and basically doing its own military exercises and counter threats. And it's very frighteningly easy to imagine how something could go wrong in that situation. Anti-nuclear activists worldwide are alarmed by the threat of another nuclear arms race. Jackie's colleague, Abaka and Jane Madison, is a leading voice on this issue for the Republic of the Marshall Islands. 
the Marshall Islands were nearly destroyed by U.S. nuclear testing in the South Pacific. I grew up in the Marshall Islands and uh, born and raised, and it's a beautiful paradise. A lot of people in the world don't know about it, and they don't know the challenges and the beauty that we have to embrace. Immediately after the World War II, U.S. conducted a nuclear program, which uh, began in 1946 until 1958. The total of hydrogen and atomic bombs detonated during this period was 67 bombs. The most devastating was the hydrogen bomb that was detonated on Bikini Atoll and was called Bravo Shot, March 1st, 1954. This uh, was 1,000 times greater than Hiroshima or Nagasaki bombs. My family were affected by the Bravo Shot when they were living on Rongalab Atoll. Rongalab is 300 miles away from Bikini Atoll. When the bomb dropped, the people, 87 of them, were not informed. They didn't understand what to expect. My uncle was the mayor at the time, and he said that they felt the earth shaking. A strong wind came and flew off some of the roofs. Later in the afternoon, white flakes fell from the sky and children were playing in them. You know, they didn't know that it was contamination. And in fact, they really thought it was snow. And some of them pretended that it was soap. And so they caught them and rubbed it in their hair and skin and face. And some even... Uh, ate them to see what it was. And it tasted so bitter, it burns their lips. Throughout the almost three days that they were on Rongalap, they were really sick. But finally, the uh, US military came and uh, collected all of them. And once they came on board, they host everyone like they were animals. And so that's when they started to feel something was wrong. Nobody's telling them anything. The illnesses started. Uh, the lies uh, from the U.S. started. The Project 4.1 began, and that is to study radiation effects on human beings. And so they continue to live away from their home. And, you know, our land is sacred. The health effects was harsh, but leaving your homeland, uh, and no words can express. And the compensation that was provided from the United States, it was uh, inadequate to compensate the personal injuries and especially the land damages. And so... The government of the Marshall Islands decided to request for additional funding, but U.S. denied our petition. In 2014, the Marshall Islands initiated a lawsuit against the nine nuclear nations at the International Court of Justice 
for failure to comply with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The lawsuit does not seek monetary damages. It demands nuclear disarmament. This case in the ICJ filed by Marshall Islands actually is for everybody. It's for all countries on Earth and all humankind, all, all people. It's to make the nine nuclear states to comply with the treaty to eradicate all nuclear weapons in their possession. What we're saying is that nuclear bombs are dangerous for all humankind. Jackie Cabasso and the Western States Legal Foundation worked with the Republic of the Marshall Islands, putting together an international team of lawyers to argue the case. It's a really horrible, horrible, horrible story. Birth defects never seen before and other radiation-related health effects continue to plague the Marshallese people today. Women still give birth to so-called jellyfish babies without bones. But the Marshallese are very strong, principled people. So this tiny little country with a population of 56,000 people has stood up to the nuclear-armed giants in a most principled way, and they're not asking for compensation. The relief they're seeking is in order to start the process of negotiating the elimination of nuclear weapons. Kate Hudson heads Britain's Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. Like her colleagues in other countries, Kate is very concerned that a global nuclear arms race is heating up again. There's an increasing opposition to nuclear weapons in the country, not particularly on the grounds that we've fought it in the past, which has been a kind of moral and existential kind of arguments, although those are still strong. But nowadays, people have turned against it because of the cost of it, which should be around about well, in excess of £200 billion. So you can see why a lot of people are saying, well, actually, we'd rather the money was spent on something else. But it's become something of a, a kind of totemic issue. You know, Britain, we, we punch above our weight. You know, we have status in the world and therefore we have to be a nuclear weapons state. A kind of irrational status-driven argument. That isn't going to stop the campaign, obviously, because we're in a, an almost unique position where the country has considerably turned against nuclear weapons. And for many people in Britain, their first taste, let's say, of anti-nuclear campaigning came when the United States decided it wanted to bring cruise and Pershing missiles to Europe. That led hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets protesting against crews. CND became overnight a kind of massive organisation. It was a, an activism that permeated the whole of our society. And that's how I became involved. And there is an increasing feeling we're not only against nuclear weapons, you know, because they don't meet our security needs and so on, but it's this kind of idea that you have the right to shape other the country's destiny, that you have a right to help yourself to their resources, and you have the right
right to intervene. So this kind of, as it were, colonial hangover. And there's a very strong revulsion with that across British society. And there's quite a strong feeling that we need to just drop all that previous stuff and have a much more constructive, cooperative and respectful way of relating to other countries. Peace activists and environmentalists are pushing for a ban on nuclear weapons production and for cleanup of massive stores of nuclear waste. Jackie Cabasso. Any site that deals with not only radioactive materials, but also heavy metals and other toxins that are involved in nuclear weapons manufacturing are heavily contaminated, massively contaminated. And I would posit that the extent is really not fully known. I've been to a lot of these facilities and toured them, and and it's pretty daunting when you look at these massive containers with radiation symbols on them and pools of water with hot radioactive waste in them. You have to wonder, (laughs) what am I being exposed to walking through here? What are the workers being exposed to? What are the communities on the peripheries being exposed to? Russian lawyer and anti-nuclear activist Nadezhda Kutyapova knows firsthand about the poisonous effects of nuclear weapons production. Nadezhda was born and raised in Aziorsk, Russia, home of the Mayak nuclear plant. Way before the Chernobyl meltdown, the Mayak plant exploded in 1957, and the people of Aziorsk are still suffering the effects. I was born in a closed city in 1972. It was a secret nuclear city in Soviet time. When I was a child, I have never thought about um, why this city is closed. When I grew up and I have read about this accident of 1957, I understood about the nuclear production. I understood that we produced the first plutonium for first Soviet bomb. I have never thought about uh, why my father died from cancer or why uh, my grandmother died from cancer. And I understood that uh, all things which I hear it before, it's a special ideology for people in closed city to make them believe that the nuclear plant is not dangerous, that nuclear pollution does not exist, and that no any consequences of activity of Mayak. And I was surprised how it's possible to tell so great life for people and to live quietly. And uh, from this moment, I have uh, decided to create NGO with uh, my friends, And the first project was very simple to defend pregnant women, women rights um, project. As an attorney, Nadezhda Kutyapova defends the rights of children whose mothers worked in the Mayak nuclear plant when they were pregnant. She also fights to gain compensation for widows of Mayak workers who died from radiation exposure. It was the first place where the human rights were violated by nuclear industry. The production were very dirty and there were huge quantity of nuclear waste. Liquid nuclear waste, high level, middle level and low level nuclear waste. And hundreds of thousands of people were irradiated. 34 villages 
were destroyed, the consequences were terrible. It was, and today also, it's a cancer's birth defects and consequences not only for irradiated people, but for their next generations. They began to dump this nuclear waste inside the Karachai Lake. This lake is situated inside the area of uh, Mayak, and for all period of Mayak activity, they dump it inside the Karachai Lake, more than 12 Chernobyl's radioactivity. Nadezhda's NGO, called Planet of Hope, began to win its cases, so the Russian government and media moved in to stop its work. For years, they targeted Nadezhda and her family, threatening her with charges of industrial espionage. Finally, Nadezhda left Russia and obtained political asylum in France, where she lives with her family in a refugee center. It was extremely difficult for me because I felt uh, myself like I left my people because I knew that uh, nobody is ready to defend them because I felt it like my mission to defend these people. But I did it because I did not want to spend uh, years in Russian prison. Prison for such type of crime in Russia, it's 20 years. So I think that it's not good and uh, I can do more outside. I will be continue my activity for people who suffered from uh, Mayak Enterprises. Why? Because the nuclear industry hides all information about nuclear accident, not only in the Soviet Union, but also in the United States and other European countries. If you don't receive right information, you can't to make a right choice. Maya continued to contaminate the area and Maya make people like a nuclear slave because they continue to live there and to have a birth for new generation which are very ill from the reason of accident which happened many years ago. Nadezhda is fighting to expose what the global nuclear industry wants to hide. And Russia is not the only nation to threaten freedoms in the name of nuclear security. Jackie Cabasso says the U.S. also enforces secrecy. Let's talk about a different kind of pollution, which is the pollution of democracy. Because these materials and technologies that are so sensitive and so dangerous have to be subjected to intense secrecy and intense security. So fundamentally anti-democratic. Fundamentally heavily centralized. And really committing the society to live in denial to live in danger, to live in an existential crisis. Israel has a nuclear program that is also shrouded in secrecy, but one woman is challenging the state-enforced silence. Her name is Sharon Dolev. Sharon grew up in Arad, close to Israel's nuclear facility in Dimona. I don't think we even knew the words. We just knew KAMAG, the acronym. We knew that people that work in Kamag are those who we do not ask them anything about the work. It took a long time before I realized that these mushroom clouds that we see in movies, in scary movies, and Dimona are the same thing. I mean, they have a connection. The common belief is that it's illegal to talk about it. It's not illegal. There are just no rules about it because the topic was buried so deep 
that there's no legislation about nuclear issues. So there's the Nuclear Commission. The Nuclear Commission does more or less whatever it wants because there's no regulation about what it's supposed or not supposed to do. And even the media thinks that it's not up to the media to cover for it. If you talk to people, even the people in the city of Dimona, you'll find that while they know that the rates of cancer are higher or that there are all kinds of rumors about illnesses, not enough doctors, that there's no way for them to monitor the air. When you talk to them about that, you find that they're more afraid of not keeping the secret than for their own lives. The whole discourse is the security of the state. I believe that in a democracy, the security of the state and the security of the citizens of the state is the same. But with the nuclear issue, you can see very clearly that the safety of the state is by far above the safety of the citizens. Sharon Dolev founded and directs the Israeli disarmament movement. Their focus is on Israel's nuclear arsenal. We are not big. We used to be two people working. Now it's, again, just me. But we have a mailing list of about 250 people. We have interested people, about 2,000. And we have an international board that supports us. We give workshops to show the reason, the case, for the elimination of uh, nuclear weapons. We started for the first time to do it with youth. It took two years to find a school that will allow us to talk to the kids. We are in the middle of a Supreme Court case about it. Since it's our first Supreme Court case, we decided to start with something easy. Our demand now is that all the actions of the Nuclear Commission will get under legislation that will also determine the oversight over these sites and the actions of the committee. We invite to Israel as many times as we could Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors. On the first tour, we also make a meeting between the Hiroshima survivors and Holocaust survivors, and that was a very strong event. And the way they asked each other questions was a way that none of us, there were questions that none of us could think about. And then at one point, one of the Holocaust survivors stood up and said, I know it's not in your custom to hug strangers, but I really like to hug you. And then they all started to hug each other and rock each other in their arms and cry. And everybody else in the room were crying too. August 6th was a day like any other. The sun shone with a brilliant luster. In the early morning, Masaru gave his mother and grandmother a formal goodbye. I hereby depart he said, and went off to school in Hiroshima City. Those were desperate times, and they were all prepared for the possibility that one day he may not return. 
shortly after Masaru left for school, an emergency siren blared, and a B-29 flew across the sky. Six decades have now passed since that date, and still, Masaru's whereabouts are unknown. That's an excerpt from a story by Fuchiko Yoshikawa, whose family lived near Hiroshima when the atomic bomb was dropped in 1945. And that's it for this Women's Desk edition of Making Contact, produced by Women Rising Radio. Tune in for part two of this program on nuclear activists and visit us online for special presentations related to this topic at womenrisingradio.com. Special thanks to Making Contact staff, to Nico Scolieri, voiceover Soho, Francoise Bowman, Serge and Monique, Nasser Abu Adwan and Only Peace Radio, William Ring, Claire Greensfelder, Yuka Saito, and to Fujiko and Etsuko Yoshikawa. Our music is from the Nagasaki Day protests, with special thanks to Stefan Kelly. Women Rising Radio's producer is Lynn Feinerman. Our audio engineer is Stephanie Welch. And I'm your host, Sandina Robbins. Thanks for listening.